This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong Whaley. Sedition is defined as conspiring to overthrow the government by force. Insurrection is defined as a violent uprising against an authority or government. On Wednesday, January 6, 2021, supporters of outgoing President Donald Trump besieged the United States Capitol in a violent attempt to overturn the results of the free and fair election. The insurrection was instigated by a sitting president on a co-equal branch of government and perpetrated by a mob and white nationalists intent on upholding white supremacy. It immediately followed a rally at which Donald Trump had urged supporters to march to the Capitol as he repeated his false claims of voter fraud and had called on Vice President Mike Pence to step in and reject the election results at a session at a joint session of Congress that was to certify President-elect Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. Scaling walls, overcoming Capitol Police, Rushing doors, breaking windows, and charging through the halls of Congress, insurrectionists sat in the Senate's president's seats and put their feet up on the House Speaker's desk. They ransacked congressional offices and defaced statues. Many questions still remain about this assault on American democracy, one that is already in peril, and what the implications are for the future of American democracy. In this episode of Democracy Matters, James Madison University history and political science faculty experts explain the ongoing insurrection and help us understand the events of January 6, 2021. They also discuss the complicity of the President of the United States and broader efforts to undermine American elections, democratic norms, and institutions. We're here this afternoon to discuss the events that occurred in Washington on January 6th. Quite frankly, I was mortified, terrified, angry, and sad. A violent insurrection of our capital during a joint session. A violent insurrection of our capital during a joint session. Hang Mike Pence, they shouted. I saw a noose. I saw plastic hand ties. A Confederate flag was marched through Congress. Camp Auschwitz, Camp Auschwitz was on a sweatshirt along with another shirt that said six million was not enough. One Senator gave an approving show of solidarity. One president said he loved them. We saw very different response from law enforcement than we might expect. There's a lot to unpack, and we're fortunate today to be joined by experts. Without further ado, I'm so honored to introduce my colleague. Ryan Ritter is a JMU uh, sophomore and vice president of the SGA. He's a history and international affairs major. He's also a democracy fellow at JMU Civic and will be serving as our moderator for quite frankly, an important and difficult conversation. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Abe, for having me. And first we have Dr. Melinda Adams, who is the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Letters and the Department of Political Science. We have Dr. Rebecca Brannon, who is a professor of history at JMU. We have Dr. Tim Lapira, who is a professor of political science 
And we have Grace Wilson, who is with us on behalf of JMU Libraries. Uh, thank you so much to our panelists for being here. And to start, I wanted to get an overview of, of a pretty broad question and feel free to chime in uh, in any particular order or whether you'd like to speak on any part of this. But how would each of you characterize the events of January 6, 2021? And how would you place them in historical and political context? And if you could explain how these even affected you on a personal level. Um, thank you. And, and thank you for having me for this, uh, um, as, uh, as Dr. Goldberg said, very difficult conversation. In order to understand what happened on January 6th, and frankly, what is continuing to happen, it's, it's not over. Um, I, I want to be able to take a step back, if I can speak uh, um, briefly, to try to put some of this into context that is not often uh, the, the topic of a conversation in the media. Um, we live in a liberal democracy, and for good reason. Uh, liberal democracies are uh, um, uh, the safest, uh, um, most prosperous, and most peaceful uh, nation states that we uh, that we know. So, why do we need a, a, a liberal democracy? Our university's namesake defined the problem, and he defined it as the mischief of faction. What he meant by that was that in any diverse society, we will never have complete agreement among everybody that is uh, uh, that's that's a fiction so we have to come up with a way to be able to address uh, what our differences are and especially we need to come up with a way to manage our differences and resolve our conflicts without violence the fundamental solution to the mischief of faction um, and what liberal democracy does is it sets up uh, uh, the social contract based on the consent of the governed we agree to be governed by others, and we also can maintain means to revoke that consent. Those uh, uh, proper means include elections and free speech um, and uh, the freedom to assemble um, without fear of retribution for doing so. Only liberal democracy can do that for us. Right? So uh, specifically what happened on January 6th our formal electoral institutions, which is how we implement these, this social contract of the consent to be governed, the formal electoral institutions are always flawed and they're always fragile, but they work. At the end of the day, at, well, perhaps even the next day, three or four o'clock in the morning on January 7th, the joint session of Congress confirmed what we already knew, that Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris were unquestionably determined the legitimate winners of the presidential election of 2020. However, our informal institutions, our norms that are just as important as our rules and our laws broke down. They broke down in a way that I have never witnessed in my lifetime. Democracy rests on the informal norm of acceptance and reciprocity. In other words, a loyal opposition. A small faction, a very small faction of extremist white nationalists, uh, um, uh, unregulated militia used violence against the joint session of Congress that is required by the Constitution and the law to meet to confirm the election of the president and the vice president. Even moreover, they did not act alone. They were incited by the sitting president, 
the loser of the election of 2020. It's important that we understand uh, uh, legally and uh, more so and constitutionally what that means. To do that, I'm going to give two definitions really quickly for sedition and insurrection. Sedition is conspiring to throw, overthrow the government by force. It does not need to be successful to have been committed. Insurrection is an armed uprising against an authoritative lawful action of the government. The president of the United States committed sedition on January 6th by compelling his supporters in a speech less than a mile from the Capitol to go to the Capitol and uh, act violently against a joint session of Congress. What's the solution? The first of these is the immediate removal of the president of the United States and disqualification from future office. The reason is not to punish Mr. Trump. It is to protect the presidency. It is to protect the Congress of the United States. It is to protect the separation of powers and the lawful uh, checks and balances that are enshrined in our constitution. The response to this unconstitutional and illegal act is constitutional acts and lawful mechanisms, including the immediate removal of the president. We have to, I'm gonna leave it to others uh, immediately after this, but given what the president just said today, that he believes that he had no role in that event. And what we have learned since January 6th about plans to disrupt the inauguration of President-elect Biden, that this insurrection is not over. It continues and we need to act swiftly, properly and authoritatively uh, to do it. And we need to all commit to our democratic institutions and norms. Thank you so much, Tim, for that very thoughtful response. Uh, very helpful in understanding the context of what happened. Uh, Melinda, I was wondering, I was going to turn to you next. Uh, sure, and I'll be speaking as my role. So I study comparative politics, so I don't focus on American politics, but um, primarily my own research has focused on um, Africa. And so when I sort of observed everything that was happening on um, last Wednesday, you know, of course, like, like many people, you know, we were horrified by the violence. Um, but especially as sort of reflecting on it um, in, the, in the past few days, I really think that it's um, best characterized as an attempted, what's been called a self-coup or an autogolpe, which is a word that's been used um, to describe some of these um, kinds of when leaders in power erode democratic institutions from within in places like um, Peru, um, Guatemala, or Russia. And so really um, this term really describes how political leaders seek to extend their power unconstitutionally um, by overturning elections, um, you know, something that we are seeing here in the US and by gutting democratic political institutions and particularly the checks and balances, things like legislatures and courts. 
So, you know, I study African politics and, you know, in my um, courses, we talk about more traditional coups. Um, and these involve the military, which unconstitutionally re remove a political leader and then install either a military leader or some kind of transitional government. And what characterizes self-coups is that they're led by the leaders themselves and that they seek to broaden their power by destroying democratic institutions and retaining power after their constitutionally delineated terms. And so I think um, looking to um, the world, um, particularly to Latin America, but also places like Russia to see this sort of internal erosion of democratic institutions and democratic norms as Tim emphasized is really important as well. Um, and, you know, in terms of how it affected me personally, as I mentioned before, I mean, of course, we're all horrified to see the destruction of a symbol of American democracy and also the inadequate security presence at the Capitol. And I'd like to sort of emphasize, I think political scientists have been paying very close attention to, um, to President Trump's and, and even before he was president, his anti-democratic rhetoric and have been, you know, very nervous about um, his, you know, the way that he has challenged the integrity of elections, even in the 2016 elections, his refusal to commit um, to the peaceful transfer of power. Um, and so even though some of these things um, shouldn't be shocking, um, seeing them and, and, and seeing um, really just, you know, mob violence on um, in the Capitol is, is still quite, quite, stri quite striking, um, quite shocking. Uh, Rebecca, uh, I was wondering if you could potentially add anything uh, to that question as well. I can certainly try. I should add that I'm a professor of American history, and my own specialty is the American Revolution. Um, and there are certainly moments from the American Revolution that keep ringing for me, but not just that period of American history. In terms of my personal response, I think I speak for a lot of historians when I say I was shocked but not surprised. Um, I was shocked because it's shocking. Um, even there's this phrase we use a lot, American exceptionalism. The belief that somehow the United States is unique and different and that the experiences of other countries in the world are not like us and that we are in some sense uniquely vaccinated against political violence, against sedition and insurrection, even as we have this history, we celebrate this mythology that we were once the rioters and the insurrectionists in the Stamp Act riots and at the Boston Tea Party. Um, leaving aside how we managed to think all these things simultaneously. Um, right, I was not shocked because there were lots of warning signs. There were lots of warning signs about President Trump's um, unwillingness to accept democratic norms, unwillingness to accept any of these norms and traditions that Dr. Lapira was talking about that have traditionally been essentially unwritten laws about how to conduct ourselves in this particular democracy. Um, there were lots of warning signs that he um, was unwilling to accept norms, that he was um, infatuated with strong men around the world and autocrats, that, that was a more attractive and compelling vision for how to run a society than our democracy. And yet I was shocked. I was shocked by um, the violence, I was shocked by the pictures of people in tactical gear carrying zip ties, clearly looking for hostages or to become uh, 
executioners and lead assassinations. Uh, there was a gallows set up and they're yelling, hang Mike Pence. It's not nearly out of line to think that's what was intended. It was also shocking in the days that have come as more data has come out as it became clear that we have a political party, the GOP, some of whom's members also seem to have questionable allegiances to our democratic norms, such as uh, the representative who was using Twitter to alert the mob to the movements of House Leader Pelosi during the attempted coup, um, and to otherwise serve as an inside voice to what would otherwise be highly protected privileged information to save the institution. Um, I find this all uh, shocking and yet not surprising. Um, I think the other thing I would quickly say as a historian that is shocking and yet not surprising is the pictures of, on the one hand, people in these videos who seem like weird tourists who have suddenly decided this is exciting and fun or kind of gawking around like, who knew there were pretty pictures in the Capitol? Um, and then these much more militarized, organized people amongst them who clearly have a mission or wearing tactical gear are attempting to take certain groups who are who evidence suggests had clear ideas of where certain uh, leading congressmen were in the building. So for instance, um, House Leader Clyburn has said that they trashed the office he normally works in, but not the one that says assigned office with his name on the door. Um, but as when I, as an American historian, look at these images, all I can think about are, in our field, these infamous postcards that were done of lynchings in the American South. Grace, I, I was wondering if you had anything to add as well. Wednesday was hurtful. It was embarrassing. It was infuriating. Um, I think like many who have been paying attention to what some of these groups and their ringleaders have been saying, for months online and offline, um, I was fully expecting violence to occur. Um, I also think while it was shocking, it was not surprising. Like Rebecca said, that's what I keep coming back to, um, to anyone who has been taking these words seriously. Uh, some of the absurdity that we saw can't distract us from the danger. Um, and we do see that being strategically used as a tactic by some white supremacist groups. Um, they aim to do that exact thing. Uh, we've also been watching misinformation spread online and from elected officials for the past four years. You know, we have people who have been lying to the American public at this point. Um, it's past time to call the truth true and a lie a lie. Um, that big tech has been able to shut down the president's accounts so quickly only proves that they've always been able to do this. They've always had the tools and power to enforce responsible use. Um, organizations like the Anti-Defamation League have been pushing Facebook and Google and other platforms, other companies to take aggressive action to curb hate speech for over a decade, for over 15 years now. Um, we've known that they've always been able to do more. We've seen them do it in the filters that they have put in place to adhere to stricter hate speech laws in other countries. Um, these companies are profiting off of the traffic. Um, they don't fear retribution. They have responded disingenuously. 
to every inquiry. Uh, personally, um, as a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, I did not expect to see Nazis in the US Capitol in my lifetime. My grandfather's entire family was murdered by the Nazis. He was the only survivor. Um, the post-traumatic stress disorder of this moment uh, is hard to overstate. And I also am feeling what I think a lot of people are feeling is almost pre-traumatic stress um, because we know that most likely there's more to come. It will probably uh, get worse before it gets better. And so um, we need to be resilient and we need to be able to imagine a better future. Thank you so much, Grace. I think one of the most important things is um, in, in the being able to grapple with the trauma that has been done and move towards um, move towards healing. Uh, Tim, we have a follow-up question for you. Um, I wonder if you can please elaborate on and discuss the implications of the gravity of the assault uh, by the president on a co-equal branch of government and also seeing bipartisan support to ring President Trump before his term expires um, so that he can be disqualified from future office. But I wonder if you can speak to the practicality of how this might be accomplished so close to the inauguration. My, my, my previous comments were really speaking on purely uh, interpretive and normative terms, right? That, 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 that very professorial saying that this is what the conditions are, this is what happened, and this is what ought to happen. Very much not, uh, not so easy when it comes to the practicalities of what uh, um, the next week or so uh, um, will take. I suspect that by tomorrow, uh, the House will impeach uh, President Trump for the second time. Um, which of course means that the next step in that process would be a Senate trial. That Senate trial is triggered when the Secretary of the Senate receives notice, formal notice from the House of Representatives that the President is impeached again. The problem there though, what's happening is that immediately after the insurrection and the end of the joint session, the Senate by unanimous consent agreed not to meet again until January 19th, the day before the inauguration. That can only be undone by unanimous consent. They are still in session in what is referred to as pro forma session, which really doesn't have any legal meaning except a common understanding among senators that we're not really doing any business. The constitution requires them to do something once every three days for them to be technically in session. So what happens is one senator comes in, gavels in, they say the prayer, they say the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, um, perhaps receive some messages from where, wherever, and then they gavel out and it's, it's done. So it's unlikely that the Senate, and near impossible that the Senate will meet again uh, uh, in order to deal with that before the inauguration. That does not mean the impeachment trial need not go forward even after President Trump uh, uh, leaves office without being removed. What the question then is, does the Senate conduct a, an impeachment trial while it also conducts the other business of the American people, including its own prerogative to confirm presidential nominees? We know, especially under a time of insurrection, that a President Biden is going to need an attorney general, a secretary of defense, a secretary of uh, uh, health and human services due to the pandemic. There is uh, a no shortage of immediate problems 
that the federal government absolutely must address and needs and, and needs personnel in order to do so. So it's going to be tricky and I don't know that I have a solution, but we do know from the past that um, the Senate, when it sits as a, a court of impeachment, can on the same day conduct other business, including executive business of confirming nominees. So what I would suspect is that uh, um, the Senate, uh, um, if they can get their act together and chew gum and walk, um, that they should be able to do both, right? That they will uh, um, uh, spend uh, a good part of their mornings probably conducting hearings uh, about uh, uh, the president's nominees, which are not nominees until 12.01 p.m. on January 20th. They're just names in the news right now. Um, and uh, with all of which is necessary to vet candidates. And, uh, um, and then those, uh, there needs to be votes in those committees and then move to the floor. Um, all that can happen, frankly, quite rapidly. The Senate can act as much as the Senate chooses to act. Unlike the House of Representatives, which has many, many rigid rules, um, the Senate is a little bit more wishy-washy and uh, they can do things uh, um, as long as they agree to do them, agree to conduct business, they, they can do it uh, uh, rather quickly. Another thing I wanna point out uh, um, uh, here is that I think the country needs an immediate reaction by, uh, by both the House and, and the Senate. And the reason for the Senate for following through on that impeachment, while they also simultaneously have a responsibility to create a government, is that we must set a precedent that when the leader and the chief executive and commander in chief of the executive branch incites an insurrection against the co-equal branch, the legislative branch, the first branch of our constitution, that all other business needs to wait, that we must react immediately and decisively. Thank you, Tim, so much. Um, Melinda, our, our next question goes to you, and it's on, can you please explain how other countries have viewed and responded to the racist insurrection that took place and the implications that the insurrections have had on international perspectives of American democracy? So I think there's been a variety of reactions, um, mostly, um, you know, across the board, people have um, been denouncing violence. You know, our traditional allies, leaders in places like, you know, Canada, the UK, Germany, other EU states, you know, very quickly, very clearly denounced the violence. Um, but I think it's also striking that they remarked on how um, this event has weakened our position as a global leader promoting democracy. You know, I have just one example. I pulled um, some of the words of um, global leaders um, to illustrate these points. And so Boris Johnson, you know, the prime minister of the UK and traditionally a Trump ally, you know, he wrote on the United States in the election, I want to say that all my life, America has stood for some very important things, an idea of freedom, an idea of democracy. And so far as he, and this is referring to President Trump, encouraged people to storm the Capitol. And insofar as the president has consistently cast doubt on the outcome of a free and fair election, I believe that was completely wrong. Um, you know, German Chancellor um, Merkel has also spoken out, you know, in indicating that personally the riots made her angry and sad, but also observing the effect on democracy, saying that, you know, a basic rule of democracy is after the election. There are winners and losers, both have to play their role with decency and responsibility so that democracy itself remains the winner. And she said, 
I regret very much that President Trump did not admit defeat in November and again yesterday. Um, so as I mentioned before, my research focuses on Africa. And so I was really interested in seeing how African states have responded um, to this incident. And, you know, African leaders have also denounced the violence, but they've also highlighted um, U.S. hypocrisy. And I think um, Rebecca made a really interesting point about American exceptionalism, um, this sense that America is somehow different than the rest of the world. And I think a lot of world leaders right now are, are, are highlighting the fact that that's not true. Um, and so some of these um, responses have been using the very kinds of language that the U.S. uses when responding to political crises in other states. Um, so just to give a couple of examples, you know, just last October, um, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had released a statement on African elections. He didn't define which states were having elections, just African elections in general. Um, but this statement noted, we will watch closely the actions of individuals who interfere in the democratic process and will not hesitate to consider consequences, including visa restrictions for those responsible for election-related violence. As a longtime partners to nations of Africa, we care about the region's democratic trajectory and are committed to working constructively with international and regional partners. And so we have some African leaders, both political leaders of parties and um, government leaders responding to this kind of language. Um, so one was a tweet that was released by the major, um, the former leader of a major opposition group in South Africa, the Democratic Alliance, so an opposition political party. And this tweet noted, as Africa, we call for Americans to respect democracy, to respect rule of law and allow for peaceful transition to power, follow the example of great democratic states like South Africa. And so we see the kind of use of the very same language that the US often employs in almost a satirical manner. Um, the current president of Zimbabwe, Emerson Menagagwa, he noted that you know, last year, President Trump extended painful economic sanctions placed on Zimbabwe, citing concerns about Zimbabwe's democracy, and then responded that yesterday's events show the US has no moral right to punish another nation under the guise of upholding democracy. You know, these sanctions must end. Um, so I think it has really weakened U.S. moral authority around the world. And this is particularly troubling because we're in the midst of a democratic backsliding um, around the globe. Um, you know, China and Russia, states that both explicitly embrace authoritarianism are on the rise. Um, the EU is consumed with internal issues, so they've been dealing with Brexit and even challenges to the rule of law within EU member states. You know, Merkel has indicated that she's stepping down as chancellor. And so it's not clear who will be the global champion of democracy. Um, Freedom House um, has entitled its 2020 report on freedom in the world, um, and the, the title is A Leaderless Struggle for Democracy. Um, and this report that focuses on 2019, so not even the last um, events, noted that um, 2019 was the 14th consecutive year of the decline of global freedom. Um, so I think the fact that the US has really lost some of this moral authority, um, that it's no longer seen as the champion of democracy around the world, and that this is happening in an environment where democracy is already eroding um, is, is really, um, is really um, problematic. Thank you, Melinda. 
And Rebecca, you already touched on this in your previous response, but I was wondering if you could expand a bit. Uh, what historical precedents did this recent event break? And are there any historical examples that we could look to that might help us think through these events more clearly? Uh, well, one uh, broken norm or historical tradition is the peaceful transfer of power from one elected president to another, which began with our first president, George Washington, who was very careful that he was making precedent. And uh, the precedent was the peaceful transfer of power. And George Washington was celebrated at the time the world over for being America's Cincinnatus, uh, this figure who voluntarily gave up power. Um, it's not clear whether it's true or apocryphal that King George III of England said, said if he does that, like that he will be the greatest man in the world. Um, Washington was very aware that he was creating this. To be fair, he was creating it outside of the framework that then came to dominate American political life, the two-party political system. Uh, but within that, the second president of the United States voluntarily handed over power to the third president of the United States, and they represented different political parties. And um, it was deemed this great experiment, this great example of American democracy in 1800 that one party would voluntarily hand over power to the other. Um, to be sure, the outgoing second president of the United States, President John Adams spent all night signing uh, new men into office, especially into judgeships. And we've recently had struggles over how many people the Republican Party can cram into judgeships before losing control of the power. Uh, but nonetheless, this has been a norm that has lasted until now. However, the one historical example that keeps coming to mind that questions this narrative is the one that strangely Republicans seem to be grabbing onto right now, even though I don't think it works that well. And that is the election of 1876, because the election that made president-elect Biden president-elect was not close by historical standards. The election of 1876 was close and also pretty clearly stolen. Um, not uh, Ballots at the time are color-coded, so they're not secret, right? You drop one and everybody knows what political party you're dropping for because it's colored. And they're not machines that maintain your anonymity, right? You're dropping it in front of everyone you know and everyone in town knows who you voted for. And there's extreme violence in the American South to keep um, registered black voters from voting in 1876. And they're literally stealing ballot boxes. And there's no way it was a free and fair election. And it's still close, despite all the violence. And essentially, the winner has to make a compact with the loser. And that's how Reconstruction ended. And federal troops left the American South, at which point, uh, white supremacist Southern leaders instituted all kinds of violence to keep African-Americans in a surf-like position uh, well into the 1960s and 1970s. So I bring this up because it's not clear it is about a free, fair, and peaceful transfer of power. And the repercussions are so awful 
right? Because it literally tramples on the lives of so many. And um, it's an example in which white supremacy gains power in the United States and uses that power to subvert democracy. And we seem to be at a moment when this has become the terrifying possibility again. Thank you, Rebecca. I also want to dig a little bit deeper um, on this question of white nationalism and white supremacy and want to bring Grace into the conversation um, because this is something that she studies very closely. Um, Grace, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about um, understanding these events in the context of rising white nationalism and the culture of white supremacy. And in particular, how uh, this, the culture and these movements um, have really been empowered and enabled in many ways by the election of Donald Trump. Um, and I wonder what you see that can be done moving forward to dismantle this culture, especially given that it's a movement that's not going to just magically disappear. Sure, yeah, I mean, I think to address the role of white nationalism and white supremacy, uh, we have to acknowledge that the rage that we saw was stoked by escalating demands of white privilege. Um, the demand to nullify black and brown votes is what finally set off this insurrection. Uh, we have to stop saying, you know, this isn't who we are when this, this is who we are. Uh, unfortunately, um, it's not all that we are, but this is who we are. And we mostly hear that sentiment coming um, from white Americans because black Americans are already keenly aware that we live in a white supremacist country. Um, we know the Civil War was never fully dealt with or ended. And what we're seeing now is that same vein of hate bubbling up, bubbling over once again. Um, we also cannot ignore the culture of white supremacy and how it manifests in law enforcement. The FBI has known since at least the early 2000s that white nationalist movements were infiltrating police and military intentionally. We need to ask why that's not been dealt with. There are more and more questions that have been coming out over the last week about why, why the response was so lukewarm, uh, as well as reports on local news all over the country of individual active and retired members of law enforcement from across the country participating in the storming of the Capitol. I mean, this is confusing and just deeply concerning to have this loss of trust. Um, I think moving forward to dismantle white nationalism and white supremacy, um, it's gonna require us to confront it honestly um, and to deplatform it to begin with. Uh, we have to face that uh, there's a tolerance paradox that we're dealing with. Um, a tolerance society is going to require intolerance of fascism. We can't allow those that would like to take our freedoms away to use them as weapons against us. Um, and it's time to explicitly address the trafficking of hate online. Um, I think we're doing our country and especially the most vulnerable among us a massive disservice by continuing to center our whiteness. Uh, it's manifesting in these horrifying, you know, blind spots about things that, you know, as you've heard, we had quite a bit of warning about. This unfolded in plain sight. And so um, as a swift 
response. And as other panelists have said, you know, we have to deal with this fully and we have to remove these people from office that have been trafficking in lies and in white privilege um, generated kind of fear. And we have to be able to deal with this honestly to preserve the integrity of our systems. Thank you so much, Grace, for that response. Uh, we actually have an audience question uh, from our Facebook audience, and it's from Robert Aguirre, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters. And he asks, what's the difference between a riot, an insurrection, unrest, and protest? In past events, such as the Los Angeles protests in 1992, uprising shave has have uprising have been variously interpreted and the language hotly contested. What's at stake how we name such events? I think we could say um, pretty clearly what happened on January 6th is not, well, clearly was not merely protest. It began as protest and uh, turned into violent in insurrection. It was not a mob. It was not a, what, what are some of the other words here uh, that, that we've heard used? Uh, um, the difference between protests that unfortunately become violence and often clashes with the state or agents of the state and, and the police. And what happened on January 6th is that the object of uh, a typical protests that we've seen, including those that we witnessed this summer and all the way back to 1992 um, and, and well back into the 60s and 70s, was that this violent insurrection was directed at not a symbol of democracy. Yes, it was the United States Capitol, which is a building that, that, that gives us some sort of visceral notion of what it means to be an American. But it was against the action that those members of Congress were lawfully uh, required to take. That, was, that is what separates what happened on January 6th from other violent uh, 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 protests. We need to be able, we need to protect people's speech and their ability to protest, but our constitution also uh, uh, requires that we have a balance between the protection of our liberties like speech and the protection of lives. And, um, and, and this went a step further than merely uh, um, putting people's lives in danger, which it absolutely did, including taking uh, many people's lives. But it also went directly to the heart of what it means to live in a, uh, a democratic, uh, in a democratic society. I can jump in as well. Um, I think one thing that was striking in some of the media coverage last Wednesday was that you know people kept falling into um, using the word protest and using the word protesters, and then they would correct themselves. And so I think there is again this. Um, maybe just a reckoning with the fact that this wasn't, um, you know, a protest, but that it was an insurrection or element of a self coup or something else. And, and you know, in looking at some of the, the coverage again of this from abroad, you know, that there's this tendency, you know, when covering post-election violence in, you know, um, African states, you'll use the framing of, of mobs or riots. Um, and so there's this perception of this irrationality um, that um, was not used to describe um, this particular movement, at least initially, or there was at least some reluctance or that they, they had to keep correcting themselves. So I think it is 
important how we name it and and the fact that and I think it links back to this idea of American exceptionalism that we didn't want to see this um, at least initially you know that we we embrace our um, commitment to the First Amendment and to nonviolent protests and so this sort of challenge in in changing how we perceived um, this group at least in those first few hours. I, I want to tack on a question here, um, because in addition to naming, there's there's also a difference in how we've seen coverage of, uh, and, and Melinda, you you bring this up with with the media coverage and 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 how to to name what happened last week, um, but we can you know we can envision, um, and and we saw some of this uh, appearing on social media where uh, you know just just underscoring the the difference in how in the treatment of racial justice protests of 2020 um, uh, compared to the the treatment of those who were part of the insurrection last week. So I wonder if any of you might be willing to to comment just on on the media coverage um, and and how the, the the contrast underscores our current national reckoning concerning institutional and systemic racism sick of what aboutism sick of there must always be an equal um certainly believe that there's some question of which is the precipitating incident right are we there are all these folks who want to say but elites approved of black lives matter a racial justice peaceful movement uh, seeking to bring public attention and public force of opinion to a long simmering problem of America's, well, what uh, one 19th century abolitionist called America's original sin or sin of slavery and racism. Um, and, but, Right now, what we seem to have is an ongoing, continual white supremacist backlash to the reality that we are a multiracial democracy and to the idea that all voices and all votes matter. If people want to say all lives matter, but they don't seem to be real interested in all votes are equal. One man, one vote. That was the democracy we were supposed to have. And so what is the capability and uh, the, culp the culpability and responsibility of other government officials and media, digital, social, and otherwise, in fomenting the racist insurrection and response to it? I would say the, uh, um, the most important thing that, as I can take your question, other government officials, uh, meaning um, current federal government officials, president, members of Congress, uh, um, governors in the states, even, uh, and including even members of uh, the president's cabinet, whom we have heard next to nothing from since uh, the insurrection began. I want to note again that the insurrection is ongoing. It's not an event that happened last week. It's continuing to happen today. What we need is swift, decisive, authoritative action, not press releases, action uh, to bring uh, the insurrectionists and those who committed sedition related to the insurrection to justice. Full stop. I think um, building on that, you know, from a media perspective, you know, I also think that we need to hold these platforms accountable and these companies 
that have been you know screening content online according to values that first of all they do reflect social norms that already exist in our society and these include uh, racist and stereotypical ideas um, and then when you have sensationalized ideas being exploited for profit um, you know, no good comes of that we have lots of um, Black feminist scholars such as uh, Latoya Peterson, Sophia Noble um, have been sounding the alarm for years and years about the abuse that has been able to proliferate online. We have chosen not to listen. Um, and we've instead placed our trust in private companies that frankly don't deserve that trust. Um, we're living our lives online, especially during the pandemic. I think the profit imperative of corporate platforms drives so much of what we see um, and we haven't, we don't really reckon with that as a country. Our private platforms are not public resources. It's not a public good. Um, and yet we often, we conceive of them that way. And so there is, I think, a growing public awareness of this, but not nearly enough time has been spent reckoning with it. And now we are dealing with the consequences of handing our trust over from you know, librarians and schools and public information institutions to corporate platforms with their own motives and values. Can I add a question? Um, as I'm reflecting on all that's being shared by our wonderful panelists, I think back to what I was doing on January 6th and I was, I was glued to my television. Um, couldn't believe what I was seeing, uh, doom scrolling Twitter. Um, and then the images that have come since uh, show it to even be more horrifying than what I saw in the moment. There's a part of people that I've spoken to that maybe feel a little bit rudderless right now. What can we do? I'd be curious to know from the panelists, you know, what do we say to students and what do we say to our colleagues who are invested in this democracy? And even if you think about the mission of JMU Civic, right, to educate and inspire people to address public issues and cultivate a just and inclusive democracy in light of an insurrection. So could you give our viewers some advice on, on what, what is something that people can be doing right now? I guess I can jump in with a, a few things. Um, so, I mean, I guess one thing that I've been looking towards for optimism and something that Tim reflected on earlier is that, you know, despite this, this long process, our institutions have held, right? So um, they have been threatened um, again and again through uh, multiple mechanisms, um, but um, the courts held, the legislature held, and, you know, we will have a presidential transition on January 20th. And so I think that's something to recognize and, and to see as a source of um, a place for optimism. Um, but then as, you know, Tim also mentioned, you know, our democratic norms have been threatened and have been challenged and eroded. Um, and I think that's where, you know, you know, I teach classes about um, political transitions and um, the politics of development and um, political development. And we often sort of think of these as categories, right? As a country, a democracy, or is it a non-democracy? And, and how do we categorize them? But yet democracy is really, you know, it's something we do. It's something we fight for. It's an, it's an action. And so we all have a role to play in that. And I think that's where, you know, JMU Civic really fits in. So um, that we we all have a role to play in ensuring um, the, 
you know, the, the future of American democracy and, and that we um, need to, um, to be responsible for that. Um, I just want to quickly follow and, and at least part of the question that Ryan originally asked that, that I didn't uh, respond to in my initial comments um, was how I dealt with and witnessed this personally. Um, it was uh, another 9-11 moment for me. I had spent my entire adult life working for, writing about, and teaching about the Congress of the United States. I've had the high privilege and honor of being invited to walk on the floor of the House of Representatives. I've had the high privilege and honor of meeting many members, all of whom, uh, including working for 13 members, seven Republicans and six Democrats. And I, I, I can say that my first and initial reaction was to text my friends, email my former students, and reach out to my colleagues who I knew were there on the Capitol campus fearing for their lives. It was, a really difficult thing to deal with. So I think what we can do, uh, um, and what I too am willing to do is, is a couple of things. One, reach out to our friends and say that uh, uh, this is not acceptable. It is who we are, but it's not how we ought to continue to be. Two, and I cannot say this loudly enough, I am calling for the immediate removal of the president, but I accept anybody's vote for that man this past November. Yeah, I value your opinion and that also matters and that we need to together agree that the outcome, though it might not have gone the way in which you had hoped for, is in fact legitimate. The only way that we can move forward is if we recognize others' legitimate perspectives and that we, and, and that we except those who uh, we disagree with and who would disagree with us. Thank you so much, Tim. And we have to remember that just before John Lewis passed, he reminded us that democracy is not a state, it's an act. And we have to be constantly attempting to fulfill that act and treat it as something that we need to pursue. Well, one valuable step, even if a little infuriating that it just happened, is for the corporate donors to withdraw their support. If our norms aren't working and our processes aren't working, apparently our reliance on corporate donations might be effective in reining in the worst abuses. Uh, if I could really quickly add to that, I would say that, that um, what this episode has uh, shown us is that one of our two political parties is gripped by uh, um, illiberal fellow citizens and that they reject the system of politics and government that we have, I think that party needs to seriously reconsider, uh, um, including uh, this uh, coalition of delusionals who do not uh, uh, understand that losing is a legitimate part of, of democracy. I think the one way to do that, and there's probably a whole other uh, episode of, uh, of, that we could do here, is really seriously considering uh, adopting, as most uh, uh, democracies around the world have, is some system of uh, election that does not inexorably lead to two parties. Um, the, we could adopt new electoral rules, including ranked choice voting, that will give 
the small faction within the Republican Party, its own party, that will regularly lose uh, elections. And even when they do, they will never really gain uh, a foothold to really empower uh, the proper centrist right Republican Party. Once again, it has been uh, um, uh, unfortunately destroyed uh, from within over the past five years. Thank you so much, Tim. And leading into our last question of the day, and before we ask, I just want to say again, thank you so much. This was incredibly productive and informational. It was, it was fantastic to take part in this. And it's a big one. Um, is there any viable means for healing and bringing Americans together again? And this could be a variety of different ways or actions. And first, I want to turn to Rebecca. Thank you. Um, I'm a historian, so it's a little deadly to prognosticate the future, but um, historians like to think in big causes. And I worry we haven't yet gotten to the bottom of it because as much as I've been talking about white supremacy, white supremacy can be a cynical tool in the toolbox of certain elites to accomplish other ends. In the analogy of the American South, during the antebellum period before the American Civil War, it was not a democracy. It wasn't even a single race democracy. It was, to use another one of those wonderful words we haven't heard yet, an oligarchy. An oligarchy that sometimes veered towards kleptocracy. Uh, essentially, there were 8,000 wealthy planters who were allowed to vote and support office holding, right? We weren't talking a democracy, we're talking 8,000 people who have all the power and control. Um, the white supremacist backlash that led to the end of reconstruction was also perhaps convenient cover for what happened next, which was the creation of an oligarchic system in the United States. Uh, and the most extreme inequality the United States had seen until now. And it created the Rockefellers and it created the phrase, uh, the Gilded Age and conspicuous consumption and great fears that our democracy had in fact been superseded by extreme wealth concentrated in just a few hands who could buy off any part of the political system they wanted. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation about income inequality again, and not just in the United States, right? The, these fears about European democracy and the health of democracies around the world. We live at a time of great income inequality, and it's quite possible that white supremacy is simply another one of the cynical tools in the toolbox to cover for greater concentration of power in oligarchic hands. And I also bring this up because one of the other norms that clearly seems attractive to President Trump and yet repellent to how we think about it traditionally is he's a kleptocrat. That's what makes him and Vladimir Putin uh, akin to each other. They both are not only oligarchs in the sense that they like to control both power and money at the top, uh, but they're perfectly happy to use graft and outright theft to accumulate it and to help others accumulate it in return for political support. Um, and there's a, a Dutch historian who went to Davos, right? And he's in the, the, the hands of all the capitalists and he's like, that's great, but what about tax avoidance? Um, they don't like him very much now, right? Because he says, right, <laughs> what we have is a problem of income inequality and many other problems come from that. Um, and so I don't think it's just 
either an issue that the right wing sometimes wants to say that liberals just don't pay enough attention to poor white people in the middle of the country. But I do think income inequality is perhaps at the root of many of these problems uh, that we are facing and we are going to have to do something about it. And the last thing I'd say about that is as an American revolution historian, in fact, many American revolutionaries were also hostile to income inequality and believed that the way you could actually make American democracy work, this grand experiment they were willing to give their lives for in war to create was that you had to have a fundamentally middle-class society in which everybody had a vote, but also everybody had a financial stake. And perhaps that is the lodestar we should return to in the United States in order to guarantee democracy for my children and my children's children. I mean, I guess I don't have very specific recommendations, but I would just say, you know, assort, asserting democratic norms, looking at our institutions, as Tim suggested, things like our electoral systems, but also gerrymandering, um, and also looking at regulation of social media, um, which I think is something that's really happened in the last um, week or so, um, but um, the spread of misinformation that leads to the splintering of, of various groups. So, um, so I think those are just a few recommendations. I think there's a process of accountability that has to unfold. Um, it's going to be difficult and painful, and we have an urge to, you know, get back to normal and, you know, paper over and move on with things. But we we cannot do that um, if we really want to deal with this moment. If we want to move forward with integrity, um, we cannot heal without recognizing how we got here. Um, that there's other actors willing to move in and take place and do the same thing if this administration leaves. Um, in the Republican Party, um, those who have lied to the American public cannot be the ones to tell us how to heal. The resistance uh, to uh, um, systemic racism that we've witnessed over the past year and uh, um, what these these events have laid bare uh, for us, that, uh, uh, and, and going back to one thing that Rebecca said uh, about American exceptionalism, I don't think the United States is an, an exception to the need for truth and reconciliation. I think we need a pause button and a real way for us to recognize and stop and listen, to recognize the humanity in our fellow citizens, and especially those whom we disagree with, and uh, hopefully to recognize that our formal and informal institutions of our democracy and our economy and our society are something are the rules of the game that we need to agree on and continue to agree on. Uh, and, and that I think starts with an open mind and a willingness to learn um, and a, a willingness to accept difference of, uh, of those um, who we might not see eye to eye with. I'd like to give a, a tremendous thank you to all of you again uh, for taking part in this, uh, for everybody who was able to make this conversation happen. Uh, Thank you so much, it was fantastic.